Hello and thank you for clicking to listen. At the moment, we are looking for inspirational senior leader mentors for our fellowship program for Leaders with Young Children. So if you know anyone who is an inspirational person, senior director or partner, who has lived experience of forging that senior career alongside young children and who could support one of our Leaders with Young Children on the fellowship program, please do send them my way. They can apply on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash mentors. And of course, if you're listening and you fit that profile, please do consider applying. And is there anything else that you learned about the process of negotiating for flexible working during the application process that you'd like to share with the listeners? I think the key thing is giving whoever you're negotiating with, whether it's your new boss or a chair or the recruiter or whoever's doing that messaging for you, absolute confidence that there's no doubt in your mind that you can make this work. And then I think sometimes if you can present that with confidence, then other people are more likely to agree. Welcome to the Big Career Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti, and I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children. And that leads to gender inequality and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations. We must change this. And I hope that many of you listening to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible, where you make decisions that make our world a better place. Thank you for listening. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. You can find out all about our work on the website and the best way to be kept in touch with things is the newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. This week, I'm interviewing Greya Kroshaw, who is the CEO of Bookmark Reading Charity. We talk about negotiating for flexible working during the recruitment process. We discuss how to make a mark in those first 100 days and also about her approach to managing emails on her day off. Enjoy the conversation. Yeah, it's great to be here, Vanessa. So thank you so much for having me. I'm Greya and I'm a parent to three small people. I've worked in education for almost 18 years now. Initially, I was teaching in London secondary schools. Then I was 13 years at the education charity Teach First. And I'm now six months into the newer part of my identity as Bookmark uh, Reading Charity CEO in my family. So those three small people are Kiri, who is seven nearly eight, Griff, who's five, and Innie, who's two and a half. And then my husband, Matt, who's a head teacher at a North London Comprehensive School. And he started his first headship in 2020, about three or four days after my youngest was born and in the midst of all of those lockdowns that we had. Wow. So you are proper two big careers into in one family couple and knowing. So we should actually probably be honest with the listeners. And so Gray and I, we know each other quite well. Greya was the predecessor in the Southeast director role at Teach First, which I didn't went to. So you gave me the handover for that role and all that. Yeah. So, wow, I didn't realize that Matt was also a head teacher and therefore very busy indeed in a comprehensive in inner in city London. That's right. Yeah. 
Yep, so it's fairly, <laughs> fairly busy, fairly busy. <laughs> Let me ask a question that I ask of all our guests, which is, what did you used to believe about combining a big career with young children that you don't believe anymore? I think before you have children, you maybe don't think about it too much, but I suppose way back before having children, so that would have been, I suppose, the early to mid-2000s when I was teaching and then working in roles at Teach First, when I looked at school leaders and charity leaders, there were a lot of men or a lot of women who maybe hadn't or didn't have children at that point. So I suppose that might have led me to believe that at that point and before I knew I wanted children or three children, that it perhaps wasn't going to be possible to balance parenting multiple children and maintaining a senior role, let alone moving into promoted roles during those periods. And so, yeah, I suppose I didn't see that many role models that may, would have made me think, oh, that's completely possible. Look at those people making it look really easy. <laughs> it's not easy, but I think now I know that I want to be able to, to do my best at both. I really want to be a great parent when I can and to the extent that I can, but I also want to be working. And if I am working, then that role really matters. And so it has to be motivating. It has to be purpose-driven and it will be hard, but I have to believe it's possible to, to try and do both. And bookmark the work that you do really does matter. It's not going shifting around lots of money. You're really making, do you want to actually just quickly say what bookmark does? Sure. Yes. So Bookmark is a literacy charity that focuses on reading. We're almost five years old and we work with our partner schools, very often serving more deprived communities, serving communities where lots of children have barriers that mean by the time they leave primary school, they may not be in a strong position with their reading. And we want to work with the school to change those statistics and to provide trained and enthusiastic reading volunteers through an online platform to have a really easy and engaging and efficient way for the, the kids that need it the most to have regular reading practice twice a week, 30 minutes online. They can put their headsets on, they can get the laptops out, and as many children as the school can nominate and we can find volunteers for can can engage in in that reading time regularly and um, we we know that those children have significant shifts in their reading enjoyment their reading confidence their love of reading and that that in turn has a really positive impact on on their attainment and engagement with school overall so that's our our core service offering and then we work with our schools to think about what else they need to help them kind of boost their literacy provision and strategy be that book pack and, and resources or opportunities for staff to do particular bits of training to make sure that we are kind of partnering with those schools effectively as possible to, to serve children who have been through so much and who the stats were kind of stacked against anyway when it, when it comes to reading progress. But really, lockdown, cost of living crisis has just made bad situations even worse. So kind of doing all we can to help our beneficiaries in the schools. Hmm. So actually, this is quite an important job and you do need to get it right, I imagine. And I'm sure your children would also think that they are an important job and sure you do as well. So I didn't put this on the list of questions. So please um, tell me, <laughs> tell me if you don't want to answer it. But you decided to have three children as to die. And our toddlers are roughly the same age, around about two. I just wonder, how was the shift from two to three for you? And did you ever think about that? Because you do see a few CEOs with maybe one or two children. You don't see that many with three or four. 
I wonder if there's something about being one of three and then Matt, my partner, is also one of three. So we felt really lucky that we were able to have three. For me, the shift from two to three was actually much easier than the shift from one to two. I think when you've got one child, you perhaps pretend that there are aspects of your life that don't need to change and that that will carry on in the same way. When you have two, you realize that there's all sorts of amazing things about having two, but actually there are some things that just are going to change. And so maybe that was the bigger shift. Also, my first two were slightly closer in age. So it was kind of managing that and, and understanding, yeah, how to do that as well as I possibly could. So actually, by the time I came to have three, I think I'd expected it to be even harder so that when it wasn't that was actually a real treat to to find that that for us as a family and I know it's different for everyone the two to three dynamic suddenly felt easier and, and everything felt sort of fell into place and that was on sort of the the latter part of my pregnancy was during lockdowns and sort of managing a job and homeschooling so that was pretty tough so that actually by the time I got to that third maternity leave it felt it felt possible and fine to kind of to have three and to see them and the way they they love each other and engage with each other and the older two would sort of do anything for their baby sister and she gets away with anything. So for us, it just felt like that was sort of completing something and the right number. That's really beautiful. For me, it was the opposite, actually. Really? <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it really was. And I think not help. I mean, our toddler is absolutely wonderful, but I think just obviously it wasn't helped. Our toddler would was ill a lot and that definitely did not not help yeah but I think the learning point from this is that it's different for everyone and that's okay and some people find the shift from one to two the biggest others from two to three like me and that's that's all all fine definitely and I think we both we're both still standing and we're both still enjoying our jobs so that's a good good end result and our toddlers are still are are still alive which is also important Yes, well done, Brenna. <laughs> very, very low bar there. So you've changed from a role where you've been, what did you say, 13 years? And you obviously were the expert. I remember, you know, everybody thought Greya was really knowledgeable. She was doing, everyone would come to you for advice. And then you've moved to a completely new role. What was that like for you? It hasn't been easy, but I don't regret it, is probably the, the way of being most honest about it. I think 13 years at Teach First, so large education charity. I think when I moved on, maybe about eight, 800 people and then going to work for an organization. We're going to lead an organization with 40 staff. It's very different. When you've been somewhere 13 years, you kind of know everyone, you know how everything works, you know how to make things happen, who you need to speak to. And so that kind of relearning organizational culture at the same time as people are looking to you as a new CEO to kind of shape organizational culture is a is a new challenge. And I think in an organization like Teach First, and maybe I took it for granted at the time, there's a kind of amazing peer group of senior working parents who had each other's backs. And you knew when you jumped on a call, all of the things that you'd done since 6am that morning, there was like to be at least one other person that had had that shared experience. That's helpful to sort of know that. And perhaps at the time I didn't didn't understand how how important that was. So now moving to a smaller charity where there are fewer working parents, I'm trying to kind of bring the working parents at that charity together. It's thinking about how I can sort of role model being able to do both in a charity where there aren't that many people doing that. And then realizing I need to kind of go back to my extended and external peer group of other working parents and check in with them. 
in the way I might have done when I worked at Teach First. So it's about that kind of that wider network, I think, has become quite important to to help me through the transition piece. It's interesting that you found that moving towards an organization with fewer working parents. I think the temptation is always when do you stop? Like when do you say something is good enough? And especially when you're a CEO and the buck stops with you. How do you know that something is done to a good enough standard and it is okay not to check your email or not to send that extra email to a funder? Yeah, that was probably when I came back after my second child. So that return to work at Teach First where I learned the most about that because actually when you've got two small people at home waiting for you to get back and you've kind of figured out the childcare jigsaw puzzle that's going to work then you can't always stay on and do that extra thing so I think you become without realizing it actually much more efficient so it's not necessarily doing things to a different standard it's procrastinating less it's making decisions quicker it's delegating more effectively sharing a kind of a high standard and then trusting somebody to get there and it's looking out how to how to work with others to kind of help you round off those bits of work so i think it's something about the time it takes you to do something and realizing that you can achieve the same quality without spending as much time on that decision or without kind of drafting and redrafting and redrafting and so when you're starting out on something kind of working out what the quality bar is, what good's going to look like, and then being content when you've got there rather than doubting yourself because actually there isn't really any time for that sort of self-doubt or wondering or questioning, should or could I have done it in a in a different way? I think it's kind of relearning how to get things done. So do you think it's changed how you view excellence? I don't think it has. I think that quality bar has to remain, but you have to be much better at letting others understand what excellence is going to be for you because you're probably going to need their help to get there. So I think it's still, it's striving for the same thing, but knowing you're going to have to achieve it in a different way, in a quicker time frame, and by letting others help you. Very specifically, how do you tell others? How do you communicate that to others? What, what is the standard? What is good enough? How do you do that when you delegate a task? It's a really hard one and I'm still still working on it. I'm lucky enough to have a, a really great SLT and I think it's through the shared time that we have as a collective and being on the same page about things, which then feeds into sort of effective line management and one-to-ones where you reiterate those things. So I think in the charity sector, we're lucky because we're striving for a really important purpose and everybody comes to work because they're purpose-driven. So you make that assumption that people want to to get it right in the most efficient way because we've all got limited funds. So it's having that sort of that shared purpose and vision as a team, as a, as a senior leadership team, and then taking that through into one-to-one check-ins and the things that you ask of people through that. And let's talk about you getting this recent role because it's a big step to start job hunting externally or or being headhunted after such a long time at the own organization. What what was the process for you ending up at a as a CEO of Bookmark Reading? So I had gone back to work after my third baby. There had been a restructure in the organization. I had secured a role that was going to be very interesting. And initially I went back thinking, well, actually, this is where I'm going to be now because 
I'm at a level that I'm happy with. I've I've got a new role, so that's going to be really interesting. I've got three children at home, so I need to be in an organization where people know me and trust me and kind of know I'll do good work and where I can work flexibly. So that's it. Thanks very much. This is going to be great. At the same time, I had a chat with a careers coach who I'd worked with on and off on a few different coaching things over the years. And she sort of looked at my CV and said rather cryptically, well, 13 years, don't let it be 15. And I don't know exactly what she meant by that, but I sort of had those words ringing in my ears and at the back of my head, but I still wasn't actively looking. The role I'd taken on felt like a good stretch. And then I was contacted by a recruiter who sort of said, oh, you should think about this opportunity. I think when you're busy and you've got family life and work, then those additional LinkedIn messages or recruiter emails, it's quite easy to ignore them. So I did ignore him kind of two or three times, but he was relatively persistent. So eventually I took a call and said, okay, well, let's talk a bit about it. And then as he described what the opportunity was, how it was a focus on sort of primary literacy, my children are at primary school through lockdown. I had to get to grips with phonics. I had to understand what it feels like to teach someone to read to a level that is good enough to without then allow them to kind of go on and, and love reading. And I'm really, really lucky that that has happened for my children. And I was lucky that I had the connections and the resources to support my kids through through the home learning bits. So it felt like a topic that was incredibly close to my heart and really linked into what was a very real and live situation for our family. So from that perspective, it made sense. It was a charity that was about 40 people and 13 years ago when I started at Teach First, there were 40 people on the staff. So it was a size that I could imagine and also knew what it takes to grow that over time. And it felt that the the range of things that the role that they wanted the role to do were things I had done in part in different roles at Teach First. So it was a case of kind of bringing together the skills and capabilities and experiences that I'd had for a cause that I felt passionately connected to, but with a greater degree of accountability, I guess, being CEO. So it was that blend of sort of familiar and scary stretch, which was probably the right the right thing. So I said, all right, let's let's have a go. And then as I went through the recruitment process, it just made more and more sense. And I think my seven-year-old, who would have been six at the time, it made sense to her. And that was a really important thing. Okay, mummy, yes, I think you should do that thing because because she's very aware of children in her class who can't read at the same level as her. And she's very starting to become aware of what that looks like in education. And so for her to kind of give it the seal of approval, I think made it made it make even more sense. So I went for it. And then I was lucky enough to kind of to get the opportunity. So that's how that process worked. So the message is update your LinkedIn profile and do say yes on occasion when you're approached by a headhunter. Yeah, I think so. But also be clear about what you want, because I'd had a situation a few years before actually reflecting on it wouldn't have been the right time for me personally to step into a CEO role but I'd put my hat in the ring for a couple of charity CEO roles I can't probably in 2018 I think and at that time the recruiter was sort of saying oh well maybe don't let them know you want to work flexibly until you've at least got an offer on the table or maybe let's not disclose it at round one but let's talk about it at round two and then I did bring it up in the interview and actually wasn't successful for a range of different reasons, not not linked to the flexibility that I wanted. But actually, the, the chair of trustees at, at that time 
said, oh, I don't think you should have raised the flexible working in that interview panel. And my feedback to you is, you know, wait till there's an offer on the table. And that just didn't sit very well with me. So this time around, I was really clear from the start with the recruiter, well, I can only consider this if the way in which I'm currently working, which is sort of compressed hours, so 90% over four days can continue. And I knew that that was a lot to ask in a CEO role, but for me, it was a bit, it was a no-brainer. I need to have my Fridays with my two and a half year old. I need to be able to do school pickup on that day. I need to be able to do school pickup on the odd occasion on other days when I want to, when I need to. And so saying that from the outset before I'd even written the application and knowing that the recruiter was championing that and was referencing that to the chair meant it was never a question or a consideration. It was just known. And so I feel really lucky about that. I would hope that that is just how it is now and how it should be. But certainly in 2018, I didn't feel that that was the case. So I feel fortunate this time that it was. And I would love to like, do more to help people realise that, that that is possible and that that recruiters and chairs should be open to that and working in that way. Because I think if early on in the process, I'd been told that wasn't possible, then I would have walked away and I wouldn't be doing the job now. And we should say a chair is the boss of a CEO. So it's a boss of the trustee board, which is then the boss of the CEO, essentially. And it's very encouraging that your recruiter was so forward thinking. Do you mind sharing the name? I'm sure if there's anyone listening who's thinking about the career change in the charity sector, they might be quite keen to approach that recruiter. As in not the person, but the company. Yeah, they're called Sienna Edge Executive Search. And they do a lot in sort of ed tech and the for-profit sector. But they're also building a reputation in kind of the not-for-profit sector as well. So yeah, worth having a look, Sienna Edge. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure they'll appreciate the shout out from you. Thank you. I bet they will. <laughs> <laughs> so you you obviously told the recruiter and then how did you go about it when you raised it with the chair? Did you literally put it in the application form? Did you raise it at the first interview? Practically, how did you, what did you communicate to them? Did you say broadly, I'm on flexible working or did you nail down saying, I need to work, not work on Fridays and these are my parameters? Actually, the recruiter did that for me. So it didn't come up in the first interview. In a sense, it wasn't it was a non-issue and it didn't need spelling out. And I described what I currently did to the recruiter. And he said, Okay, yep, I'll I'll share that. I'll share that. Don't you worry, don't worry about that. So it didn't come up in the first interview. I'm just trying to think if it even came up the second interview. I think it was at probably an offer stage, and it was when the recruiter was sort of doing that negotiation bit for me. And then I sort of said, well, it yes, and it needs to look like X, Y, Z. And because that wasn't a surprise to then the chair of our trustees, then she agreed to that and actually was open and responded and said, well, yes, of course. And let's not sort of pin it down in a way that's going to hamper you. Let's know that you can work it in that way and then and then kind of manage it for yourself as you want to. So actually, it didn't it didn't even need to be a discussion, which felt amazing. That is amazing, especially if you're saying that this is not an organization routinely used to working parents. It sounds like it's becoming it now under your leadership, but it hasn't been yet. So that's very good. And also anyone listening, just to let you know, in the charity sector, it's not necessarily more parent friendly. In my experience, there are some very parent friendly charities and then there are some not very parent friendly charities like in any other sector. So I think that's a really positive that basically, even in that environment where they weren't used to it yet, you were able to have this new setup. So well done for putting yourself forward. 
And is there anything else that you learned about the process of negotiating for flexible working during the application process that you'd like to share with the listeners? I think the key thing is giving whoever you're negotiating with, whether it's your new boss or a chair or the recruiter or whoever's doing that messaging for you, absolute confidence that there's no doubt in your mind that you can make this work. And then I think sometimes if you can present that with confidence, then other people are more likely to agree. So painting a picture of how you currently manage it, yeah, how it's an asset rather than a gap or a weakness that you need to kind of compensate for. And the fact that because you're a working parent, you'll bring X, Y, Z and having that dedicated headspace and time for family will mean that your commitment overall is going to be greater and kind of, I suppose, seeing it as an asset. But yeah, being really clear and giving whoever is on the receiving end of what you want absolute confidence and almost taking the reins and shaping it and saying, well, it's going to look like this because in previous roles and experiences, I've had people line managers be perhaps quite nervous because I've said, oh, this is what I want, but how do you think that's going to work? And if you open it up and ask the other person to have to think it through, that's when all the questions start raising in their head. Whereas if you go in and say, oh, this is what I think is going to work really well, then actually they don't need to worry because you've kind of got it and you're on top of it. Interesting. But I also know it's not, I know it's not easy. And I suppose I've, on return from each of my three mat leaves, I've negotiated a slightly different flexible working pattern at Teach First. So I've almost got a chance to flex my flexible request muscle over a number of times in a safe environment with people that I know, which meant that then I was well practiced at that to then do it in an external environment with people that I didn't know. And even through those times in the past, I think the first time I did it, I probably checked in with sort of Claire Walker and Hannah Essex, who I know are involved as, I think, mentors for Leaders Plus. And Hannah has been on the podcast as well. (laughs) Great. Excellent. So I remember thinking, right, who's a good role model that I know who's been through this process and having them as a sounding board. And I've had a message from a friend this morning who's wanting to return to work flexibly and actually wants to have a call with me just to kind of almost get her script in order or practice what it is she's going to say. So I think that kind of offline practice with people that you know and trust who you've seen do this successfully also just helps a lot. And it's interesting that you, when you describe what you said and what you did, you didn't apologize once and you didn't, you presented it as an asset rather than something you need to apologize for or that you need to be grateful for to be able to get, which I think is exactly the way to go. And just on, so you said you're doing this compressed hours approach. And one thing I'm interested in is your approach to managing emails, particularly because I get, I'm hearing from two camps. So there's some people who will not touch emails on their day off because that's what they need in order to be fully present with their family. And then there are others who have a day off, but also are checking emails a little bit while they're on the playground. Where do you sit in that camp and how do you manage it? Yeah, this is a really interesting one. And it's, I suppose it's whatever works for each individual to help them feel okay on both both sides of it. I mean, I am a bit guilty of being slightly obsessed with a well-managed inbox. And so keeping the inbox under control helps me feel in control. And when I don't feel in control, then that's when I'm more likely to sort of feel stressed. So I think it's okay. And everyone is different. And I think you can give yourself or not give yourself permission to check or not to check. So 
I do tend to check. I keep it. I only will. I'll check once, maybe in the middle of the day or slightly later in the day, because I like to feel best prepared for Monday. And also, as CEO, ultimately, I am. I am accountable. So if something has cropped up that's fairly serious, then I do need to know. So my out of office sort of reminds people of my mobile phone number and says if this is really urgent you can text me and then when it's good for me I will call you back no one's ever actually had to use that to date but it is there I think if I wasn't a CEO role maybe I wouldn't need to have that on my out of office so I'm certainly not saying that's the right thing to do for everybody but I do feel spending no more than an hour or two quick half an hours scanning the inbox and just knowing okay that's come in I'm going to deal with that on Monday I might just think about that thing over the weekend but not take action on it for me helps. But yeah, there'll be other people that need to have that complete switch off. And that's the right thing. And if I've done that at two o'clock in the afternoon, I've had a lovely morning with my toddler, and then I'm in the right headspace to go and do pickup at three o'clock. So it does, it does just help me. But I think there are things I tried to keep in mind about emails. If I've been CC'd, it is just that it's for info, it's not for overthinking, and it's certainly not for response. And I think there's a kind of old version of me that would have waded in and responded to a CC or given it far too much thought when actually it's just CC. So that's something I keep in mind. Also, the more you send, the more you get. So actually, when something comes in, do I need to reply at all? Can I pop a quick Teams message over? Is this something I can follow up with someone in their check-in? And actually, that will help other people because the minute I reply, then lots of people on the two field will think that they need to reply and it just sparks an unhelpful and kind of unhealthy cascade. So that is, I'm trying to keep in mind. I think if something's heating up over email, then just taking a moment, taking a breather, not replying immediately, or actually suggesting to other people that that needs to become a meeting now. And just again, trying to kind of scale back the number of emails that being sent in general, so that that Friday isn't full of emails, because actually that's not the culture that we have. We're not there yet, but we'll get there. And also being aware of an email chain with more senior colleagues, if there's junior colleagues in it, can actually make them feel quite potential to make them feel stressed. So thinking again about who who's on email and what's appropriate. And then the final one is the kind of, if I choose to work slightly different funky hours to kind of make sure I get my job done in the way that I want to, that's okay. But I really don't want other people to feel that they need to read or respond. So just using delayed send and actually things going off at eight, nine o'clock in the morning, even if I've worked on them at a different time, I think it's, it's helpful to not kind of drive up other team members' stress or an expectation that they need to work the same hours as me. So I've kind of got several strategies for managing it. But ultimately, I am one of the people that does need to just have a look to feel okay. That's the point, isn't it? To feel okay. Yeah. And and that's what matters to you. And if for someone else, actually not thinking of it completely might be the right thing. And that's that's okay as well. So you just need to figure out what is good for you and then stick to it. But let's talk about the first 100 days, which there are tons of business books written about what to do as a leader in the first 100 days. Did you approach it as a special period, as in the first 100 days of your new job? Did you do anything special or was it just start your work? I intended to read lots of things about the first 100 days. I think I did read one thing and I intended to kind of have a first 100 days plan. And then you then it just sort of starts happening and you're in it and it's rolling. So for me, I suppose I 
it was more helpful to think in months of 100 days. I found the sort of 100 days breaking it down in that way a bit difficult, a bit tricky. So I suppose I thought more about, okay, in the first three months. So And helpfully, I started at the start of a, a school, an academic year. So it's sort of like, right, where will I be by the end of November? And then kind of got that extra bonus bit leading into Christmas. I think it was about trying to learn all the nice stuff when you're new somewhere, somewhere everybody wants to tell you how shiny everything is and let people have that moment and learn and experience that nice stuff, but also ask the right questions to find out the more messy stuff as quickly as possible. Because otherwise I think you can go through your induction and then be blindsided by some of the things that actually do need your attention and do need fixing. I think over communicating, I probably didn't do that enough. Six months in, I'm now trying to make up for that and do that more. But something that you know in your head is your priority and you've said once or twice, you assume everybody really understands that that's your priority, but you probably need to tell them every time that you meet with them or every time that you join a team meeting or that you kind of send that note out. I think I had, I go by either OneNote or physical notebooks and always have kind of two lists on the go, short-term actions that I need to kind of clear in the next two or three days and the long-term things I'm noticing that I want to get to when I've got a bit more headspace and then I try and manage my meetings kind of linked to that short-term stuff and and longer term as well and and keeping an eye on both because as a CEO at a small charity you're going to be quite operational but you also need to be strategic and balancing those two things can be challenging so keep always keeping that in mind understanding other players kind of operating in the sector and and reaching out to them. It's tempting to be quite insular when you're new somewhere and learn as much as you can. But those wider sector relationships are going to be really important. So, And also what they think about your charity before you're too ingrained in it is also helpful to know. And then the most important one is probably that peer group piece. As a CEO, you don't have an obvious peer group. There are CEO networks, but you don't necessarily know those other people. So who are the kind of former colleagues or people you've worked with in the past that you can stay connected to and kind of almost have as your team to touch base with or ask questions of and having kind of regular virtual contact with, I suppose, former friends and colleagues has helped me realize that I've got my internal SLT team, but I've also got my wider team that you kind of build up through, through your career. And those people become, I think, even more important when you move into a CEO role. Thank you so much for sharing so openly and honestly. And is there anything that you, looking back at the start, you wish you would have done that you didn't do? I think I made an effort to kind of join everybody's individual team meeting and then encouraged team members to put time in with me for kind of a real coffee or a virtual coffee. And lots of people did that, but actually some didn't. And what I should have done is flipped it. And particularly with the people who didn't, proactively put that time in. It's quite a big thing to do if you're in a more junior role to kind of sign up for coffee with the CEO. And maybe they didn't because they didn't feel comfortable. So actually, I'm kind of now want to go back around and do that. And the people who I have since spoken to kind of in the kitchen or in the corridor, just make sure I've got a a bit of sit down time with them because there was a reason they didn't proactively put it in. And I want to make sure that I have their views as much as I have the views of the people who are confident and love the opportunity of chatting to the CEO. So that's it's it's not too late, but that's something I probably could have done differently. Thank you for sharing. And how did you square the fact that you were trying to both, you know, to be present with your children and not work completely crazy hour with starting a new role? Because starting a new role is extremely busy. Being a CEO is extremely busy. 
And then when I think personally, your child started nursery, right? When you started to see oral, which means they always get ill at the beginning as well. Yeah. Maybe you were lucky, but generally that seems to happen. How did you deal with that tension? I think it's working out. Well, when you have one, two, three, however many children, it's sort of impossible. You you have to get home for bedtime. So there's a cutoff point. And then it's impossible to work across that bedtime period. So there are small people that physically need you that mean that you do have to switch off. I think my husband and I both have kind of given each other permission when we need to, to kind of, we'll do bedtime, we'll have dinner, we'll have a chat, we might watch something rubbishy on TV. But actually, but if we need to take stock and do some work in the evening, also, sometimes that's okay. Again, I'm not advocating that. I'm not saying that's for everyone. But that does help me again to feel prepared for the next day. But it also means I'm not trying to like look at emails on my phone when I'm doing bedtime or when I'm reading stories. So giving myself permission to completely switch off at the times when my kids are there so I can be present for them. But knowing that that sometimes will mean I need to just get my thoughts straight at a different point. Because I think almost it's that bit at the end of the day when you don't have kids, you can get through your to-do list, you can plan for the next day. I think when you've when you've got to get home and do bedtime and be present for your children, it's sometimes that planning for the next day piece that gets missing. You might more or less get through your to-do list, not every day, but that resetting for the next day can't always happen in your working day or in your compressed hours. So sometimes taking the time to do that at a different point. I hope it's okay to say that. I don't want to, yeah, it's the reality of it. No, 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 I completely agree. I really agree. And I love that freedom that comes through when you're saying this. I think it's incredibly powerful what you shared. I'm really curious about your practical application. Just briefly, if you don't mind explaining, because both your your husband has a really big job. You have a really big job. How do you square that? I imagine term time looks very similar, very different from non-term time. But practically, how do you make it work? So Matt likes to leave the house at 6am. So, so that happens. And that is the, that's the reality for us. The way we make that work is that three mornings a week, I will kind of do that early morning and kind of to drop off everybody where they need to be. And then two days a week where I want to be able to get in and have the headspace and start earlier. We have a combination of my mum or grandparents helping and being there the night before so that she can be on duty with me from six or seven and then kind of take over at seven. And I can leave the house and get in to the office before other people are there and have some headspace in the office. I go I go in two days a week. And then we also use an app called Bubble. And through that, I posted a job which sort of said, I'm, I'm looking for someone who is happy to come to my house once a week at seven o'clock in the morning, get three small people dressed, do their breakfast, drop them at school, keep everyone happy. And I just didn't think I would find any takers. Luckily, there was one person in our neighborhood. She's a university student. She doesn't have lectures on a Wednesday. It suited her down to the ground. And she was very bought into kind of coming around a couple of Saturday afternoons, doing Lego with the older ones, playing with the younger one, so that they knew her really well. So that now I feel really confident on a Wednesday, I can leave the house at seven and they're going to have a really lovely time. I mean, she's manages to play board games with them after breakfast. That doesn't happen on the days I'm with them. So it's kind of building that patchwork, I suppose, of childcare that you feel really confident in to allow everybody to kind of have the setup that want them to have. 
And excitingly, Matt negotiated with his school to slightly compress his hours. I think the school sector has a bit of a way to go before it's as flexible. So once a fortnight, he works at home, has taken a slight reduction in sort of hours and pay to be able to do that. But it does mean he can do drop off on that day. He does pick up on that day and he has a decent chunk of time with our toddler on a fortnightly basis as well. So I think he's really doing something kind of unique in the the school sector and that has made all the difference and that Thursday fortnightly is my favorite morning of of the whole fortnight I bet and that's such an amazing thing for people who don't know what head teachers days look like that is completely unique I've never met head teacher who doesn't work 60 70 hours a week and that is really really impressive that he managed to negotiate that so well done to his to his board and him yeah <laughs> so I want to finish off with like we do with all podcasts to ask for three practical things that someone can implement this week so let's picture a listener who is about to start a new role what are your three practical small five minute things that they could do this week in order to start the first 100 days well? So I think the first thing was some advice I got when I was one of my return to works and working with a maternity coach. And she talked about taking time to sort of sketch out in a notepad what my ideal week would look like. What's the balance of meetings to non-meetings, email time or not email time, getting things done, big picture time time with the children, time with my partner, all of that, and getting into the habit of kind of knowing what what that would look like in an ideal world or what your kind of gold standard is. And then knowing that it's in your gift to try and shape that and you won't get it right and it won't be gold standard every week. But actually going into a new role with that in mind will, I think, help you then create the conditions that you want. Whereas if you kind of go in and let it happen to you then before you know it you'll have got into kind of working practices that don't make you feel great but people just will expect that of you because you didn't create it from the outset so I think that'd be my first practical thing kind of scribble down what that perfect balance is and then don't beat yourself up when you don't achieve it but at least you've articulated what it what it could be asking all the questions in the first three months you're kind of new enough for none of what's happening currently really to be linked to you in any way. So you can challenge all the assumptions and ask all the questions before you're too ingrained in it or accept things as the norm and write down everything you notice. And then at a later point, kind of come back to it and then it will fall into place and you'll kind of group it in themes. But just, yeah, noting it down and asking all those questions and and remembering to breathe. I think it can feel the pace of it all and sort of doing the family stuff and doing the career stuff, it can feel all encompassing. So kind of giving yourself a chance to breathe and whether that's coming up with a different route into work that allows you 20 minutes to walk, because actually that's going to make all the difference to your day or to listen to a podcast or whatever that kind of breathing space is to help you kind of remember the bit of you that's you outside of being a parent and outside of doing your job and carving out little moments for that to happen for you throughout the week. Excellent advice. Thank you so much, Graham. And if people want to support you and your work, where can they go? I presume you're always looking for donations, looking for volunteers. What do you want people listening to do if they want to support you? 
Yeah, absolutely. So you can follow me on LinkedIn and I kind of welcome new connections. And that could be for volunteering opportunities, for kind of engagement opportunities for your team that want a really nice way and flexible way for them to volunteer. Could be for funding, could be for sort of strategic partnerships or pro bono support, all of that very open. So follow me on LinkedIn and then go to our website, www.bookmarkreading.org. And you can find out all about the charity and think about how you might be able to support us. But we absolutely in need of reading volunteers so if that appeals yeah don't delay we have many children kind of on our books that schools want to have a regular reader and we will get you on boarded and, and train you up and get you helping those children as quickly as possible fantastic thank you very much Graham. that's okay it's been my pleasure thank you Rena. thank you for listening today if you enjoyed the podcast and you think a non-judgmental community of support would be really helpful to you then i would love to hear from you as an application to the Leaders Plus Fellowship Program. As you know, properly, this is designed to help you to identify where you want your career to head and will give you lots of support and encouragement along the way. And then most importantly, to help you make it possible to get there practically whilst being present with your family in whatever way you want that to be. Previous fellows have said it made them take really courageous steps that they never thought possible and also that they made lifelong friends and connections. In our last cohort, more than half have got promoted or got additional senior responsibility by the end of the program, and that's particularly impressive because most of them work part-time or flexibly. Plus, I think they've all got quite mavericky in a good way. They're all involved in some shape or form of driving vital change for working parents, be that mentoring other parents, be that changing policy in their organizations, whatever fits at that moment in their lives. It only takes about half a day a week Uh, Sorry, (laughs) that would be a lot. Half a day a month. So I think it's more than doable. It's been designed with parents in mind. You can find all the details on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash cross-sector fellowship. And also, if you want us to talk to your employer, to your organization about offering this to their employees, i.e. you, then let me know and my colleague Joe or I can have a conversation with them. My email is verena at leadersplus.org.uk. On a completely unrelated note, I also feel passionate about gender equality in podcasting and I've recently learned that the top, you know, 100 podcasts, etc. is extremely male-dominated, I think 90% male-dominated or something like that, depending on what stat you look at. And I thought that needs to change urgently. So if you want to help and <laughs> push forward female-led podcasts, then first of all, listen and share female-led podcasts. And if you think this podcast is is good and useful, then also do share that, leave reviews and do all those things that increases the algorithm's prominence. So yeah, for example, a WhatsApp or signal message to some friends with a link to the podcast is always very welcome and very helpful. And hopefully it will help us smash this particular glass ceiling up in the podcast world. See you next week and thank you so much for your support.